40th Academy Awards were scheduled for April 8th, 1968, but due to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, the ceremony was postponed until April 10th. We chose In the Heat of the Night for episode 17 here on Oscar Sunday because it features some of Sidney Poitier's best work ever. He just might be the most important black performer to ever grace the screen. The late 60s brought a lot of change here in the United States, especially in film, which is what we talk about here on Oscar Sunday. The Hayes Code was out, New Hollywood was in. In the Heat of the Night was a part of the first wave of New Hollywood, along with films like Mickey One, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Shooting, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Cool Hand Luke, The Dirty Dozen, David Holzman's Diary, Rosemary's Baby, so many more. But Connor, I want you to explain a little bit about the Hayes Code because it's very important at this time in film. Here we are in 1967, 1968, talking about In the Heat of the Night and the 40th Academy Awards. So uh, do, do you have anything to say about the Hayes Code? Oh, I have quite a lot to say about the Hayes Code. <laughs> so the Hayes Code has come up quite a lot on both Filmgasm and Oscar Sunday because it's one of the biggest obstacles that film has had to overcome in the hundred years it's been around. Uh, the Hayes Code was established first in 1930. Uh, it was called the Motion Picture Production Code formally, but it was called the Hayes Code uh, because the creator of it, Will H. Hayes, left a prominent cabinet position to become chairman of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, the MPPDA. He got a $100,000 boost to basically moralize the film industry. And what he did was pretty much blacklist anything that could be construed as immoral. And this is immoral in the eyes of a white, rich American man. So what ended up being uh, censored was pretty much everything that made uh, America look weak, made minorities look strong. And well, here, here you go. This was the three... These are the three general principles of the Hayes Code. But number one, no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So the good guy had to win every time and the bad guy always had to lose. Kind of, you know, takes the mystery out of it. Number two, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. Number three, law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So not only do the bad guys have to lose every time, the good guy can never falter in his belief of the law. It always has to be good versus evil, like in its purest form, and good must triumph every single time. But beyond that, there were a series of rules grouped under these self-explanatory headings, and these, these are just kind of the vague no-nos. Crimes against the law, sex, vulgarity, obscenity, profanity, costume, suggestive dance, religion, locations, i.e. the bedroom, national feelings, titles, and repellent subjects. Now, those are just vague enough for white racists to include their ideals of no mixed race uh, relationships, no homosexuals, no powerful black men, no powerful black women, and this was Hollywood for 30 years. <laughs> Unbelievable. And uh, it was officially ended in 1966, but this was every American film 
had to follow these extremely strict, extremely like morally fucked up guidelines. And uh, yeah. that's the Hayes Code. For so now, whenever we talk about the Hayes Code, you'll know what what we're talking about because we have brought that up a lot, but we never really explained it. So there you go. Yeah, well, you know, the reason we haven't quite gone into it is because we haven't gone there on this show until now. We're talking about a film that came out right after 1966. You know, 1967's In the Heat of the Night. It's a great, great film. We had both seen it already, so we kind of knew we were going into something, something awesome. But we went ahead and watched all the Best Picture nominees again, just like we did last week for Hamlet 1948. Um, this is a fun group. You know, you got In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, and guess who's coming to dinner. So you got see showing it twice there, right? And uh, that's, that's, that's massive. Representation is huge, huge in communities. And it's hard for, you know, white folks to understand that, right? Because it's always just been there. It's always just been there right in front of you the whole time. And you've always been able to be the hero of everything. We've always, you know, that's just how it's been. So to see Sydney kind of this guy who's able to break through, that's kind of why I call him the most important black performer ever in, in my eyes is in the way that Jackie Robinson is very important for baseball. He, he, he literally broke in. He's that fucking talented. He's that good. And, and people want to work with him. And he's in these movies that are up for all these awards. He's just a legendary performer. And so I was very excited to go into this film talk about this time in film and uh the abolishment of the Hayes code is huge for fans like you and i connor and modern fans and young fans like we, we would not be able to see half the movies we like right if, the, if it wasn't for the Hayes code being abolished so I, I thought it was very important to bring it up now as we talk about a film that came out right after it was abolished yeah and and this and this is you know this is new hollywood right this is a new wave of just these crazy movies that are doing all kinds of things, breaking the rules. And then you go into the seventies and it's like, fuck it. You know, everything, everything happens, you know, and you know, European cinema definitely influences, uh, you know, the Jean-Luc Godard's and the Chantal Ackerman's they influence, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s films here in the United States and so on and so forth. And now we have all the creators that we have today. It's, it's a fascinating journey. Yeah. Especially when you consider that European filmmakers did not have to adhere to the Hayes Code because this was exactly. an American uh, kind of you know, restriction. So European and Asian filmmakers were experimenting during this time. They were building their craft, whereas we were hindering it. Yes, exactly. Yes, they're liberating the art of filmmaking, and we were hindering it and putting barriers up and making things that are, to me, so normal, so a part of normal life making it illegal to put on a movie, you know, on a screen. So it's just, it's, it's really disturbing when you really break it down. And, you know, sometimes this podcast is going to go to those places because we want to make those kind of uncomfortable, quote unquote, conversations comfortable and uh, kind of normalize talking about this era of film because it's, it's so, so important to know when it all happened and these films that came out, why they're important movies like Bonnie and Clyde and the graduate that just immediately out of the gate. Okay. Hey, fuck the Hayes code. I guess we're going to do whatever we want, you know? And that that's, that's fucking American. That's fucking American right there. That's the America we want. That's, you know, we want that freedom in filmmaking and, and creativity and art 
And so it's, it's beautiful to see. And I really like this group of films that we were able to watch. But In the Heat of the Night is my favorite, for sure. It's, it, it's so poignant and it's such a good Southern film, right? Like it's got this amazing soundtrack this amazing score and all these, you know, cool things going on. That's very Southern, but at the heart of it, it is, you know, the elephant in the room is, you know, we have a black character here in the deep South and he's a fucking good ass policeman is what he is. (laughs) You know, Uh, he's actually trying to do his job. And so uh, did you have fun rewatching this one? Did you like it more? Or, you know, I, I know we both already got to see this one before. I liked it way more. And I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, but this time, there was just something different about it. I got really drawn in. I was, you know, I was, I was laughing at times. I was, you know, freaked out at times. It's a very engaging film. Yeah. And I love that. I love the, like how, you know, it, it doesn't hold anything back. It really depicts, you know, 1967 Mississippi. Like this is exactly what it looked like. Yes. Exactly what it felt like. It's exactly what would happen to a, you know, a well-spoken black detective if he was wandering around in small town, Mississippi in 1967. And that is absolutely yeah. terrifying. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. And these, these kind of, you know, like uh, dramatic, you know, thriller, like detective type movies, they're just not made like this anymore. <laughs> they really aren't. They don't have the, the ebbs and flows. And I, I definitely compare it to, you know, something like the French connection from 1971 that comes out a few years later, just the pace of it, the sheer tempo is so authentic and so raw and so rewarding that I, I feel like anytime I see a movie that's trying to capture that now is just trying too hard. and doesn't, doesn't quite have that, that oomph that we want that the sixties and seventies films just gave us time and time again. That's because it was new. This was, you know, the first time that they were able to make films like this. So yeah. they went fucking hard because <laughs> they were finally yeah. able to play in the sandbox. And we got so many amazing films because of that. Because everyone was like, what? You know, it's like the genie at the end of Aladdin. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm going to Disneyland. Like, shit, what? 10,000 years. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and so I, I do want to, you know, stay on the subject of, of New Hollywood for a bit. Yep. And ask you, you know, I, na- I named quite a few films at the beginning. And those are just some that jump out to me. And some that in general I think are important. Are, are there any that are like your favorites? Because th- it's such an amazing time. Easily the Dirty Dozen. Oh, so good. Jesus. That, so, obviously war films were a big commodity from, you know, post-World War II to the beginnings of Vietnam. So, but all those war films always had, you know, clean-cut John Wayne, you know, American cowboy leading the charge against the evil bastards. You know, I'm morally amazing. Nothing bad will ever happen to me because I'm an American. But then, with the... the, uh, Abandonment of the Hays Code, you had a film that features the worst soldiers in the military, the people who have deserted, who have killed, who have raped, robbed, like they're in line to be executed. And they are turned into a team to go fight the Germans. That is badass. That is a great idea. And they never could have gotten away with that in the Hays Code. That's a film that needed the Hays Code to die so it could live. And it is so badass yes yeah yeah those those are certainly ones that like jump out to me right or like ones that like rosemary's baby is is so appalling yeah if it came out now 
the film is so dark. You know, we talked about Rum Plants on film gas and plenty of times and he'll come up. <laughs> he'll come up sadly, unfortunately on Oscar Sunday as well. But Rosemary's baby is definitely one that sticks out just because of the, the sheer, you know, darkness of it, the fear, the scared, scary moments. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this era is filled with amazing films and I'll continue to kind of go back and try to check them off as I go. The, the big ones. Yeah. And then like bouncing off of Rosemary's Baby, you know, that film opened the floodgates for movies like The Exorcist and The Omen to kind of just oh. take the ball even further. So the Hayes Code was holding back literally every genre of film. The dramas were yeah. oh my God, yeah. horror wasn't scary enough. Like, it was just, it was ridiculous. Oh, and not to mention one of some of my favorite movies, you know, like Coffee and Foxy Brown, you know, some, the black exploitation era where it's like, Oh wow, you know. Here here's here's like a entire race that's been neglected by the film community finally able to, you know, be on the screen. And you know, again, that's why I think Sydney is, is just so damn important because he came before that wave, right? He he's a part of the starting of the wave. Speaking of, I just want to point out that Sidney Poitier with his um nomination for the defiant ones in 1958 became the first black man to be nominated for best actor and then yep. with his win in 1963 for lilies of the field he became the first black man to win it yeah so. oh yeah <laughs> he's just wicked important to the oscars wicked important to film in general and get this there would not be another black winner of best actor until 2001 when denzel won for training day like and then i think it was yeah then it was forrest whitaker for last king of scotland and i think that's uh-huh. Yeah. For best best actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wait, Jamie Foxx. Mahersh- right. Mahershala Ali for best supporting. Yeah, but yeah. It's That's, not the ratio is fucking crazy. Few and far between, which is why we are going to, you know, it, it's it's obvious obviously at this point that we're two white guys, you know, carrying this show talking about the Oscars, but we will make it a point to talk about movies that have black representation that have, you know, whether it be foreign representation, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, Korean films. We talked about a French, a French uh, Algerian film (laughs) already. We we intend on stretching to find the films that the Oscars have missed because we know our criteria is that there's supposed to be a nomination there but we're going to do our best to, you know, to find the films out there that do have the representation because we, we certainly want equality uh, when it comes to movies. I mean, we love the new, new rules. We love the uh, potential that they have, the, the guidelines that the Oscars are now making, you know, it's, it's, it's a plan from now until like 2024. So we'll see how it all unfolds, but I'm really excited. And I think you are too, just this sort of thing's kind of needed, right? Yeah, and it's, and it's it's, ne- it's necessary. It's just necessary. Yeah, on every level, you know, everybody deserves the same opportunity to be, you know, to get to do what they love to do. I don't think that's a controversial statement. No, not at all. Not at all. And it's it's so crazy that it took as long as it did to destroy something like the Hayes Code, and it's crazy that it's, you know, still taking time to have you know like fairness in award shows and those those conversations are so hard to have because really what it comes down to is a is the rooted you know issue is opportunity and you need to have representation in you know the director's chair and with the writers and the producers not just the actors right you want 
you want that everywhere within the films being made. So I'm excited for those rule changes coming for the Oscars for their, their guidelines. And uh, I think it's a conversation we will continually have on this show because it's, it's fucking important. We're not just going to only talk about the white guys. They've just fucking praised with, you know, flowers forever. You know, let's be honest, you know, they've given out these kind of like participation trophies at times to white guys who are old as shit, who've just been in movies for 30 years while they neglect black talent. You know, it's just, it's the, it's the, it's just facts. They've given Roman Polanski break after break after break and given him awards, given him best director. And you know, that's just absurd. That's absurd when you give this guy a chance over and over just because of the skin, you know, it's, it's really annoying and frustrating in a conversation I don't want to shy away from. And we're not going to on this show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're familiar with the Filmgasm podcast, you know our thoughts on Roman Polanski. You know our thoughts on John Wayne. We, we detest these people. But, yeah, yeah. you know, Polanski's films, I think, are a different animal. And 100%. We want to, you know, talk about all that. And you know, not, it wasn't just, you know, uh, you mentioned not giving, you know, black talent enough chances either. But it also was the same for, you know, Latin talent and Asian talent. Oh, like it's always oh, 100%. been. 100%. White man has always been in the spotlight. And yes. even today, you know, I'm expecting kind of the same thing for next year's Oscars, but I'm hoping it, that it doesn't happen. And I'm, and I'm not you know, saying that every white person who's ever won an Oscar didn't deserve it. That's no, not at no, all no. what we're saying. We're just saying no. that, you know, we'd like for everybody to have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a really tough conversation because, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it, especially you know, I think white people feel like, oh, where should I go here? And it's, it, it's like, look, of course Daniel Day-Lewis is, is awesome and deserves some of these awards he's gotten and the acclaim he's gotten over his career. But there should be I – know, I know there's been some, some black males out there who have worked their ass off to be in positions and just haven't gotten a fair opportunity. I know that's the case. And that's mainly our, our problem, right? The end product is the end product. There's nothing we can totally do about that when it's over. But, but we want the opportunities to be there for all communities. And so, you know, a, a movie we brought up many times is a movie like Parasite, which is like a shock to the senses when you see that movie win all these awards because you're like, whoa, that's typically just not what the Oscars do. So it's really exciting to see them, you know, put a spotlight on this you know, Korean film, like that's, that's really nice. And that's what we want more of. Um, someone that I think is uber, uber important to, to study is Alfonso Cuaron. Um, this extremely important Mexican voice, right. And people should take their time to, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you're into film, you should take your time to check that stuff out. That's, that's just what you got to do, right? That's, <laughs> that's kind of like the rules of, of being a cinephile. You got to do that stuff. You got to do the work and, and see all these things with the representation because it's out there, but we want it in the Oscars. We want it in the big films. And, you know, that's, that's, that's not too much to ask at all. No, I mean, you know, we've, everything that's happened already, we can look back, we can explore, you know, the amazing moments of the Oscars, but also, you know, we're going to, dig into the mistakes we're going to talk about when you know the oscars got you know a little too white (laughs) we're gonna talk about that driving miss daisy we talked about it when we did dead poet society we talked about it and we both kind of detest the idea of that movie 
because it's like, what are we doing here? This is literally, you're literally setting it up to be like a white savior movie. And that's exactly not what should be nominated and winning at the Oscars. You know, and I, I think that's just a conversation that should always be had. And, and yeah, again, this podcast will always bring up those kind of tough things. And uh, in the heat of the night, talk about a movie that brings up tough stuff. <laughs> when, yeah. when, was the fir- when was the first time you saw it? I saw this the first time, I think my junior year of college. I had just, okay. I was doing a thing where I still do Netflix through the mail and I have like 500 movies in there. So what I would do is just scroll through with my eyes closed and whatever the, the, uh, whatever the mouse landed on, I would move it to the top of my queue and get that in the mail next. And it landed on In the Heat of the Night. And I watched it and I thought it was amazing. And I hadn't seen it since. And here we are, my second viewing, and I loved it even more. Yeah, yeah, no, I, God damn, it's amazing. It's like a borderline masterpiece, I think. And I bought it <clears throat> online because I want to, you know, both of us want to eventually own all of the best picture winners on DVD, right? Well, I want to see the, all of them. I don't know if I want to own them. I think I, I think I do want to own all of them. I think it'd be cool to have them all kind of like on the shelf together. Uh, yeah, of course we both want to see them all because yeah, you got to have that. You got to know. You got to know what to say when you <laughs> when someone asks you if it's good. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in the heat of the night is one I just kind of looked up online. It was shortly after Willow was born, and I just bought it for like six bucks on on i can't remember what what website it was bought it got it in watched it immediately fell in love the the music is something else and that's that's been something that's been on my spotify now for the for the past year and a half or so and uh yeah i'm re-watching it was a treat it's it's got some scenes some moments that made it very hard for me to choose my best scene for later. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I really, really adore the performances in it. Uh, I adore the tenacity and authenticity that it has, the screenplay. Yeah. Uh, that they weren't afraid to say some words, but also have the guy that's... They also allow the guy to defend himself, meaning uh, Tibbs they allow the black man in this movie to fucking bite back. And he certainly steps to these guys, right? Time and time again. And not just performance wise, but his character too. Like both of them, like Sydney is like, okay, Rod Steiger, like, let's go, you know, and kind of like steps to him. And they're both just playing off each other in such a, such a wonderful way, a way that reminds you of, you know, you know, Samuel Jackson, John Travolta and Pulp Fiction. And, you know, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman and Shawshank, like these movies, they're just like, I just love these guys together. You know, <laughs> I could watch this for fucking days. You know, that's the kind of attitude uh, I have anyway, when I'm watching them, it's, it, it's, it's amazing, man. And won five awards. And of course we're going to talk about those, talk about what it was all nominated for. And definitely going to talk about the best picture um, race there. Cause we got to see all five. We're going to have a really interesting uh, conversation for best actor because we've also seen Cool Hand Luke. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're going to have some fun here, but we're also going to have our four categories for just In the Heat of the Night. And I think it'll be a lot more fun than last week's Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because they're actually tough to choose. So uh, do you want to start? Uh, what's the first one we should do here for In the Heat of the Night as far as its nominations? Probably effects. 
yeah, always start at the bottom, work our way up. It's more fun. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's do it. So sound effects, uh, the category that would evolve into sound editing. Two. Uh, two. We have the Dirty Dozen and In the Heat of the Night. The Dirty Dozen won this award. And yeah, honestly, I don't see why In the Heat of the Night was up for sound effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, and if there's only two, just like whatever. Uh, that's just frustrating. How can you not throw any more movies? Like, if In the Heat of the Night can make it, then surely some other ones can. But I would have thought like Bonnie and Clyde would have gotten you know a nomination for that or so- something else. In the Heat of the yeah. Night, it's not yeah. a very, it's not a movie known for its you know sound design, really. Or, or yeah, you would think like even, I don't know, I see up here, you know, Camelot or something, you know, I don't know, something's got to have more going on. <laughs> However, it did win Best Sound, the award that evolved into Best Sound Mixing. So it did win that. And it was up against Thoroughly Modern Millie, uh, Dr. Doolittle, The Dirty Dozen, and Camelot. And uh, again, The Dirty Dozen. <laughs> just don't see it i don't see the sound design of this movie i don't get it yeah yeah i'm not i'm not quite sure i'm thinking people were probably really impressed by like some of those initial scenes and uh within the heat of the night uh when there's multiple characters like talking at once and the phone's going off and people are like whoa you know imagine those people watching uncut gems (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably uh, talk about a movie uncut gems talk about a movie that needed the Hayes code to be gone for it to exist at all holy lord you could go back to the past 50 years of film and get you know hundreds maybe thousands of films that would not exist if the Hayes code oh easily easily thousands I, I think i think so many of my favorite movies every horror film since 1960 pretty much <laughs> yeah yeah Basically. That old genre would die in, in, this, in the 50s if the Hays Code was still active. Yeah. We'll just for, we would just have to watch foreign horror all the time. That's true. America would just have nothing to, to like, no dog in that race. Which would, like, not be, I'd be kind of okay with. Because I love foreign horror so much, like, some of the Japanese stuff. Like, I'd be okay. I mean, it would suck, but I'd be okay. Not imagine a world without the films of John Carpenter and Wes Craven. It'd be terrible, but I don't but, want to put it in that world. But if I had to pick a genre, right? I think horror because I love so many of you know what the other guys are doing, and I'm so interested in seeking them out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Obviously, it would suck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't be able to see fucking Hereditary. Like, are you kidding me? Like, come on! If that movie was taken away from me, I'd lose my mind. So ridiculous. Uh. Next up, best film editing. Uh, this w- in the heat of the night took this one. It was up against Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Doctor Doolittle, The Dirty Dozen, and Beach Red. Uh, haven't seen that one. No, editing, I don't know much uh, about. Yeah, what do you think? This one's tough. Best film editing is again, I think, a category where they don't know exactly what they're looking for yet, and there's not dare I say at this time, there's not enough uh, distinction as far as the audience knowing, knowing 
knowing exactly what they're watching. I'm not saying the filmmakers are not, don't know what they're, uh, of course the filmmakers know what they're doing. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is fucking dominating in the fifties and sixties and doing crazy shit. He knows what he's doing, but I'm not quite sure if the audience and the Oscars and the film community in general knew exactly like where to pinpoint those kinds of things. Yeah. I see what you're saying. This was, you know, we, I think I talked about this when we did the episode on, I think it was the great dictator. Uh, might Probably. Have been, no, on the waterfront, I think it was. Okay, yeah, episode this was a 10, time. Yeah. This was a time when, you know, a lot of filmmakers would just, you know, point and shoot. There wasn't a lot of editing that needed to really tell the story. It was yeah. all just, you know, whatever we get on camera. And with the, uh, with the death of the Hayes Code, you had a lot more experimentation going on. You had filmmakers who were never able to make a film now able to do whatever they wanted. So tricks were, you know, start, tri- like familiar tricks we see now that kind of make a you know, movie stand out. We're just kind of starting it out. So I can see why film editing would be you know, difficult to kind of determine here because was there really anything special in that department? I don't think so. Yeah. 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 I'm with you on that. And so, so that one's tough. I guess I, if I'm choosing out of these, we haven't seen Beach Red. I think I'd choose The Dirty Dozen again. Yeah, probably me too. <laughs> that takes us to the other film. Um, yeah, I keep doing that. I've done that in like every episode. The other nomination that the film did not win, Best Director. Okay, yes. We have Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night, Richard Brooks for In Cold Blood, Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Arthur Penn for Bonnie and Clyde, and the winner, Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Um, who do you think deserves... Best director at the 1967 Oscars. Norman Jewison for Any Heat of the Night. But I do love, I do love The Graduate. I really, really enjoy that film. I think it's important for people to watch. It's one of the like real big ones of New Hollywood. A lot of rules being like, okay, we're taking that to the next level. And, and it's funny and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie that's referenced all the time. But as far as just directing, and I just think scene to scene, like, holy shit, holy shit. Like, they just stack up next to each other. I, I got to go in the heat of the night. Yeah. Okay. You know what really made me, I just, this doesn't really have anything to do with director, but I just wanted to point this out. Um, in the films we watched, something I noticed was the almost nudity that happened in all, the, like, in most of the films, like, in, especially in The Graduate and In the Heat of the Night. We have so much implied nudity, but like we don't see anything because even then it was still like that was too much. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. In the heat of the night, the yeah, the intro the, at the very beginning of the film, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? And in the you graduate, know, it, when Mrs. Robinson turns around and you can tell she's naked, but you don't like the, the way it's cut, you don't see anything. It just made me laugh. And then and then we have our our good buddy, good buddy pal Steven Spielberg in 1975 with Jaws, being like, I think I'm just gonna put some boobies at the beginning of the movie <laughs> and, and it, he just went for it you know he took it he, he took it there things like that just show you you know how quickly the landscape can change it's hilarious it's, how like one decade that will condemn you and completely destroy your career and then another gives you a pg rating <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 gives you gives you the the, mo- the the like monumental you know film cinematic history changing summer movie jaws yeah that's pg let's take the family out 
for a day and go see Jaws. Yeah, that's really funny to me. That 10 years earlier, it would have been like, no! <laughs> <laughs> my, my pick for director is Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's definitely number two. Um, oh, boy, that movie is, is something else, isn't it, right? You know, I, I would say that that one's influenced a heavy amount of films, uh, whether they know it or not. It has that has that again that elephant in the room the underlying, just the whole time you're just you can feel that tension whether they want to believe it or not it's there. My, um, so I have a very big extended family. I have a lot of uh, interracial marriage in my family, and um, when I posted my review on on Facebook, my uh, great uncle George, shout out to George Lewis if you're listening to this, um, he's he's a black man who married a white woman. And he commented, been there. <laughs> and I was laughing so hard. <laughs> Cause yeah, he's, you know, he, he had to do that. I mean, you know, you don't think about it these days as you know, that big of a deal. I've never considered interracial marriage to be, you know, anything different than just marriage. I mean, it's always just been marriage. There's been no issues with that in my family or anything, but you know, you look at a movie like this and that was a taboo subject in 1967. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And your your co-host here, myself, I my girlfriend is is black and I you know, think it's extremely important to be be aware of that and uh be aware of how how it's been treated over time and how there's people who still don't like it. And there's plenty of people who still look at you, you know, in a certain way or whatever. And you just have to have to stay as positive as you can and, and, and remember the people who are, you know, being progressive and moving forward. And I, 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 yeah, it's, it's really, it's really difficult, right? Obviously it's just one of those things that's really frustrating, but again, we're not going to shy away from those kind of conversations on this show. And this, you know, guess who's coming to dinner is like shoving that in your face, the whole movie. Yeah, and I, I I thought it was a, like hilarious at times, and then at times it you know almost made me cry at times where it's like just the situation itself, and you know I I personally you know can't say I relate to it you know I'm I've been so so welcomed by Brianna's family and they have taken time to get to know me and talk to me and. I felt nothing but respect really from, from them. And I, I think my girlfriend would say, you know, vice versa. We, <clears throat> we try our hardest to have the conversations that people may look at as tough, you know, and that's just, that's what you have to do as a person. That's what you have to do right now as an American, especially is you've got to be aware of what's going on around you right now and to be conscious of people's feelings, be conscious of what people are going through, you know, it's a, it's a tough time and it's been a tough time. And here we are talking about a movie from 1967 when shit was really tough at the beginning of the show. I talked about how Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, right? Was, was assassinated and it's just fucking devastating. And to see this movie win best picture, I just, I, I really, really wish Sydney also would have gotten a nomination. That just, that would, that would have been really nice and maybe even a win. I agree. I agree. It would have been nice, especially since he turned in two incredible performances. No kidding. And got Jesus. shut out for both. Yeah. That's really frustrating. Right. It makes you think like, ah, come on. Like, were you guys just trying to be fake? Nice. Like, come on. 
But well, I have, I do have some mixed thoughts about that, and we'll get to that when we get to best actor. Oh yeah. Um, next up, best um, adapted screenplay. This was, uh, this was a good one. So we have um, Ulysses uh, by Joseph Strick and Fred Haynes, In Cold Blood by Richard Brooks, The Graduate by Buck Henry and Calder Willingham, Cool Hand Luke by Don Pierce and Frank Pearson, and the winner In the Heat of the Night by Sterling Silphant. Amazing name. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely this film was like deserves this one. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, I need to read the novel. I, I don't know why I have. Some people might think that's lame for me loving this movie so much, but not reading the book. But I definitely intend on it. I don't think it's lame. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I've never, I've never read those. <laughs> really? I didn't know you hadn't read those. Huh. I read The Hobbit, but I have not yet read. Oh, Hobbit. okay. I was going to say, I thought we had talked about some Tolkien before. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> the Hobbit's great. It is a great movie. Yeah, you know, Lord of the Rings, great movie, great book, I've heard. Hobbit, okay movies, great book. We don't need three Hobbit movies, but that's not, that's a, that's not for now. Yeah, <laughs> different, different time, some other that's episode. A, that's a whole podcast. All right, that takes us to best actor. The, the big one that I really wanted, was looking forward to talking about tonight. So we have uh, Spencer, Spencer Tracy for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a posthumous nomination. He died 17 days after filming. Uh, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde, and the winner, Rod Steiger, for In the Heat of the Night. All right. <laughs> so, who do you want to drop for Sydney? So here's the, yeah, this is the, this is the interesting conversation because Spencer Tracy, should he be supporting instead of best actor? I don't know. Rod Steiger, is, are Rod and Sydney bo- both up for leading? Are one of them supporting? I don't know. It's really hard to figure that out. I just think it's a damn shame he's not in there. It is a damn shame, but these five are fucking stellar. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I think, to answer your question, just if, if I had to take one of these out without thinking about that, I, I would take Spencer Tracy out and put Sydney from In the Heat of the Night and for, for Virgil Tibbs. Spencer Tracy is great. He's great. But, but the, I can't take Paul Newman out. I cannot take Dustin Hoffman out. I can't take Warren out, and I can't take Rod Steiger out. <laughs> I, I can take Dustin Hoffman out. I think that's who I would drop. Uh, as good as he is in The Graduate, I, just, I, I think he's done better. That's uh, fair. That's fair. He's kind of an annoying character in The Graduate. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, but I would, I would honestly do Sidney Poitier from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's fair. Either one. Either one. Don't matter. They're both amazing. But I would still give the Oscar to Rod Steiger. Man, Rod Steiger. <laughs> he is something else in this movie. His, I, I, read, I read someone's review. I, I wish I remember the name. Uh, that's going to bother me. But he had mentioned how this performance by Steiger as Gillespie, he's he knows that he's not smarter than Tibbs, but he also knows he's not as arrogant as the people around him in his hometown. And it's the ultimate trapped character who is finally confronted by someone who's smarter than him. And he's like, ah, fuck, I'm not like the, you know, I'm not in charge of the town. Like I thought I was. And when you, you know, watch this movie a couple times, it, it, he is doing some crazy shit in this movie and his whole get up with the hat, how he keeps moving it up to the side. 
his glasses, you know, the kind of Hunter S. Thompson yellow glasses. It's just everything's, you know, spot on. Well, I listened to Rod Steiger's acceptance speech, and amazing. I thought he was British. He's not. He's from West Hampton, New York. But okay. He sounds like he's got an English accent. I don't know what it is. You know, it's New England. I don't know. But um, he's such a humble figure. He he dedicated his Oscar to Sidney Poitier and said that he valued his friendship, and he learned about prejudice. You know, like from that from his uh, side of things, and it's just you could feel the love. And I really liked that. I love Rod Steiger, his evolution in this film. Because he starts out as the, almost the bad guy. Like, he's the, you know, he's the southern sheriff of this Mississippi town. He's obviously going to you know, start some shit here. He hates Tibbs from the beginning simply because he's an educated black man who doesn't know his place. And over the course of the film, a relationship starts to bloom there. A mutual respect. And it never feels unearned. It never feels insincere. You believe it. Yes. And I love that. You rarely get a believable version of this relationship in film. A lot of times it's like, a, you know, hey, we're not so different, you and I. Let's be, you know, we're brothers at heart, but it never feels deserved. But in this film, you, you get it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's because of specific scenes that's doing the work, right? And you have scenes we'll get into i'm sure one that i love is when they're talking talking on the couch you know and he's like what'd you say black boy and it it reminds you that he still doesn't really like you he respects you Uh, but that's all it takes right that's all it takes and for these two guys to get the job done and to like work together and it's just i don't know man they don't make them like they like this one (laughs) you know I, i i hear some some older people say that like they don't make them like they used to and i fucking get it you know after watching some of these 60s and 70s gems that are just the way they move again the tempo and the pace of it it's just special special filmmaking you really do feel like this is the beginning of a completely new generation it's they all feel like they are heralding the beginning of something amazing yeah you can and you can you can still feel it now right um as you watch it as you know, the credits, the opening credits happen and the music's playing and you have kind of like jazzy, bluesy music going on. It's just like, whoa, it immediately takes you into a different place. And that's, that's exactly what you want in a film. And, and, and this era does that the best. I can't believe that Ray Charles was not up for best original song for this. Oh yeah, I know. I, I looked at that earlier because I was, you know, just looking at the, the nominations and I was like, whoa, how is that not one of them? That's kind of ridiculous. <sighs> Never know with these things, man. Um, yeah, so you, who's, who are you settling on for, be- for your best actor choice? I love, I love Rod Steiger. I think he's great. I love Sydney. I think they're both amazing in, in the heat of the night. But I, I, think, I think it's, uh, I, this might sound almost counterintuitive after everything i've said <laughs> but i think it should go to uh, paul newman for cool hand luke i was um, not expecting that left turn okay <laughs> uh paul paul newman uh you know obviously one of the golden boys one of the one of the golden boys of of hollywood and it's for a reason sometimes <laughs> he's damn good you know I, I love him in this i love him in the hustler uh 
big, big, big fan of, of some of his work. And I, I think uh, of those performances, I, I think that's the one that I'm, I'm like most impressed by. Uh, but, but In the Heat of the Night is a film I'll keep watching over and over. So I, I could grow even more attached to Steiger and, and Sidney's performances. Paul Newman's a guy that we are eventually going to dive in deep on on this show. Of course. So many Oscar, not like nominated films. Personally, I think the man should have two Oscars, and that is for The Hustler and Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition, underrated as fuck. Yeah. He almost plays like a ghost in that movie. It's it's phenomenal. Another one that I don't think ever got enough credit. Another film I'd love to do on this show. But yeah, while, while Paul Newman is this huge, massive name, if you ask, you know, most people our age, they're going to have no idea what his movies are. And so he's definitely a guy we want to take the time to totally dive into and give him all that respect. But yeah, I, I've seen a handful and the, Cool Hand Luke's one of his best. Uh, he's, he's, he's awesome. He is awesome. And that movie was bonkers. I, can, I thought Strother Martin should have been up for Best Supporting Actor. Like I thought he was oh, fucking yeah. crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah well george kennedy won one for that you know you got some cool names there you know john cassavetti's just obviously a fucking legend for filmgasm and oscar sunday we'll talk about him plenty of in the future and gene hackman yeah just he was churning out some great stuff at that time uh guess who's coming to dinner you got cecil Kellaway, and then bonnie and clyde michael j pollard so yeah just awesome group as well uh this this happens a lot with best supporting actor you get these really fun juicy character actors but also big time actors doing all these different roles it's always a good variety good good wide range of uh performers definitely my favorite category every year it's always it, crazy it typically is for me as well um what what are some of your favorites because i i wrote like a top five you know but what are some that like jump out to you because like, like for me you know you know immediately that jumps out to me is you know mahershala Ali and moonlight um you know i think you know um uh, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men is Anton Chigurh. Like those are some other ones I, you know, J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. Those are some more recent ones that I, I adore. Um, some of my favorite winners of the past. Uh, well, we just talked about Walter Houston in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I thought he was amazing. So good, so good. <laughs> um, let me think here. Um, definitely, you know, Ledger. We're talking, yeah, we're talking current, definitely Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, uh, Robert De Niro in The Godfather 2. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of ones that, you know, didn't win, a lot of memorable nominations, but uh, winners. I'm, I am jumping to a lot of current stuff because, you know, I know it, I like to go all over the place, but really in the past, like, 10 years have been some of my favorites. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, I have no problem definitely being honest about that. Like, I think my all-time favorite is Christoph Waltz for Inglorious Bastards. Like, yeah, that one's legendary. I, yeah, for me, it's Mahershala Ali and J.K. Simmons. I mean, those are, yeah, 2016 and 2014. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, 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 Jake, I mean, J.K., I mean, that's one of the best villains, you know, of, of the past decade. So also one of the best performances and one of the best movies. We definitely talked about that in episode, what, episode eight? I think so. Something um, like that. I, I don't know. Yeah. Quick update, by the way. I uh, personally finally decided to push Whiplash up to a ten for me, so it is is now a ten. <laughs> it's a fantastic. Welcome to welcome to the club. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> a ten. You you knew you knew it all along. <laughs> I did. I did. It, it's sometimes it's hard though when a movie is that 
concise and that you're like, how is this perfect? <laughs> it tr- truly, truly. I think about, I think about some movies where I'm like, is it really, you know, a, a film I just watched that I gave a 10 that I'll have a review up is, is hunger from 2008 by Steve, uh, directed by Steve McQueen. After it ended, I was like, why did I like that so fucking much? And I was like, just be honest with yourself, man. <laughs> you, you loved it because you loved the story and you loved what Michael Fassbender is doing. <laughs> I do have to shout out one last Best Supporting Actor winner. I can't believe I left him off. Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, of course. Tommy DeVito. Goddamn. Yeah. Of course. It's the best category because we get these random you know, character actors who finally get some gold. Martin Landau and Ed Wood, you know, Robin Williams, Good Will Hunting. Like, it's, it's nice. Tim Robbins, Mystic River. It's, it's just nice to see these guys get some love, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> All right. With that, let's go to Best Picture. So we have, obviously, In the Heat of the Night, one. Then we have Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So let's take these one at a time. We'll save In the Heat of the Night for obvious reasons. Uh, let's start with Bonnie and Clyde. So we have a incredible cast of Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, Gene Hackman, Michael J. Pollard, and Estelle Parsons, all of whom were up for Oscars. Yeah. Uh, Estelle Parsons was the only one to walk away with gold, which is ironic because she's the most despicable character. <laughs> and, um, yeah. This is a film about notorious real-life 1930s bank robbers Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker and the gang that they formed as they robbed banks all over the South. And uh, they were pretty shitty at it. They only ever robbed like 50 bucks at a time. And uh, they ended up getting gunned down by Texas Rangers. And uh, it, it doesn't, I don't think it goes as far to glorify them. It does kind of show that yeah, these were horrible people, but it does kind of tell you why. And I, I, liked, I liked that. I liked learning about who these people were. And uh, I thought it was a very well done uh, crime thriller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, this, Bonnie and Clyde might be the most, most important of the new Hollywood, that, that initial wave. It, is, it, it changes the game. I mean, it made a lot of money, first off. But it, <laughs> it changes the game. And like you said, where it, it, it does that thing that we are still falling in love with, that young people are still falling in love with, is it teeters that line of glorifying, like robbing and killing and a life of, you know, being a criminal and, and, you know, just telling the story, you know, uh, shows come out, you know, breaking bad and, you know, or even true stories like Narcos and all these things kind of pop out that are still popular now and always will be because we're fascinated with seeing people do dangerous shit and bad shit, you know, and this is, this is a movie that changed the game in the sense that it, it was for the youth and the youth was obsessed with it when it came out and they, they needed more, wanted more. So they got more in the seventies. You know, that's just, that, that it has a lot of weight. That one and the graduate have a lot of weight for because of how big they were for the youth. That's true. Very well said. Yeah, they're huge films for this, you know, 60s youth re- uh, revelation. I mean, a revelation. Yeah. Well, think where, about us. Think yeah. about us, man. If we were 25 during the, you know, we're like, yeah, listening to Bob Dylan and shit and going to see these movies, this is what we would be doing. Like, this is this is the world we'd be trying to find and living in is stuff like this is hundred percent. We'd be seeing Bonnie and Clyde in theaters. Like, Whoa, that would blow our minds in 1967. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And, uh, 
Was this kind of, I would say this is Warren Beatty's kind of first big movie, right? Yeah, I, I personally, he's one of those guys I don't know much about. I know much more about Dustin Hoffman. He's somebody I've watched more of. But yeah, Warren, Warren Beatty is, is, is a guy I want to spotlight on the show so that I can finally go through his filmography and really tackle the ones because he's always someone that my, my mom and dad have been like, yeah, you've got to go through his filmography. He, he's in some great movies. And I, I, I just don't know enough. This, this would be my favorite kind of by default. I have not seen much. I've seen Bonnie and Clyde. I've seen Dick Tracy. Uh, Dick Tracy is okay. I don't remember it very well at all, honestly. It's a weak movie. Um, I've heard his big one is Reds. Like, if we were going to do any of his films, that's seen, the one we yeah, do. Yeah, see, I can't believe I haven't seen Reds. You know, I, shame, Bugsy, shame on me. Like, he was the big, he was huge for like 20 years. Like, he was the guy. And, I don't know. I've always found him kind of overrated personally, but you know, then again, I haven't done the research. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, to tell a quick story, there's a board game called wavelength that my family likes to play. And one of the categories was, you know, if, if you and I were partners in the game, we'd be on the same team and we're like, all right, uh, say the category is Warren Beatty movies. You and I, without saying anything to each other, we have to write down five Warren Beatty movies in order and try to match what the other guy is going to say without talking about it. I like that. And so it's, yeah, you would, you would love it. It's very fun to play. My family gets into it. And of course, as you should, you know, you should be competitive. We're here to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my dad and I were together and we got Warren Beatty films and all I wrote was Bonnie and Clyde. This was like five, six years ago. Uh, and that's all I wrote. And he was like, you know, he wrote like seven down, <laughs> you know, and he's like, Austin, come on. Like, and I was like, Oh, it made me feel like an idiot. And I was like, I don't want to feel this again. <laughs> So, so, you know, I, I do need to do that work, right? Is you, you want to be able to answer those questions sometimes. It's sometimes that simple. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. <laughs> so Bonnie and Clyde, let's talk about the film that does not belong. The elephant in the room. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> so in the 1960s, 20th Century Fox was nearing bankruptcy. So they decided to bet everything on three enormous budget musicals. Star, Dr. Doolittle, and Hello, Dolly. All three of these films tanked spectacularly and nearly bankrupted the studio. And if they hadn't re-released The Sound of Music, they would have gone into complete bankruptcy. And we would have lost Fox in the 60s. Dr. Doolittle is the, is the uh, lowest scored Best Picture nominee in history. That's a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it is critically reviled across the board, yet it scored nine Oscar nominations and won two. <laughs> hmm. Bribes, plain and simple. The 20th Century Fox execs invited the Academy board members to a wine and dine uh, party and basically just liquored them up and got Oscar nomination promises out of them. And that's why this film is among these cinematic greats. <laughs> Sometimes back in the day, it was that simple. It really was. And, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it brings me back to when we did the Z episode. I remember Hello, Dolly had a whole bunch of Oscar nominations, yet it failed. So I was like, huh, now I know why. <laughs> Definitely took some bribes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it leads me to think, I told you this before we recorded, like maybe we should do Dr. Little in the future and just kind of go into all this stuff of, 
the bribes and whatever was going on exactly with the Oscars. But the film itself is, is just not really for me. It's, it's, it, it, it's not that, that bad, like 20 bad, but it's, it's not something I want to rewatch. Well, Fox was really hoping this was going to be another My Fair Lady for them. And uh, they cast Rex Harrison, who was a complete prick the entire time because he did not want to do this. So he decided his way of having fun was he was going to make everybody's life a living hell. Uh, yeah, he would just randomly like appear in shots he's not supposed to be in just so he could fuck them up. Yeah. <laughs> he would insult everybody. He would berate people. He was throwing racial slurs at the Islanders. Like he was, he was the worst on the set of this film. And the final product is not worth the headache. It's not a very good film. None of the songs hit. Like they're all off beat. They're all off tempo. Like they didn't even try that hard. It's, and it's two and a half hours long. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That, that, that runtime was really daunting. And I was like, oh man, you know, halfway through it, I was like, oh boy. Yeah. You know, here we here we got to keep going, but it was okay because the other four movies were are so worth it. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, the character of Doctor Doodle has become pretty iconic over the years. But it's yeah. a a doctor who can piece, uh, speak to animals who decides to go on a voyage for this mythical sea snail after he gets thrown out of his uh, hometown for being crazy because they all think he's nuts because he can speak well, to animals. He kind of is nuts. So, well, in the whole movie, like horrible shit happens but he's always just like oh never mind (laughs) (laughs) oh yes complete you know shipwreck exile (laughs) about to be killed and eaten by by natives and he's like oh never mind (laughs) (laughs) ah little bird will get me out of this one (laughs) the rain in spain stays mainly on the plains yes as much of a as as big of a dick rex harrison is there's something about his performances that are just undeniably charming. I don't know what it is. Oh, oh yeah. Just, just yeah. his, he's got a little shine in his eye. Yeah. He does. I feel like, you know, when he's there, I feel like, you know what? This might suck, but I'm going to enjoy him. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have some fun. This guy's an entertainer. Yeah. And then it, really, it hurt to find out that, oh yeah. And he's a complete asshole. <laughs> ah. All right. It's like when you find out Santa Claus, is not real? <laughs> just, it hurts. I mean, you kind of expected it, but it hurts. You're like, yeah, I kind of figured. Yeah. And that brings us to The Graduate. A film about a recently graduated college kid who has no clue what his future is going to bring. His family is very certain about his, uh, his path. He gets overwhelmed, ends up sleeping with his parents' uh, older friend, Mrs. Robinson, starts a torrid affair with her and then ends up falling in love with her daughter. It's a very weird love triangle. <laughs> and um, It's a, you know, an issue I do not wish on most people. I can't imagine that this happens a lot, but Dustin Hoffman is a very neurotic young man and Bancroft is a total bitch. And Catherine Ross is very sweet and, does, and he does not deserve her. <laughs> so that's, that's the graduate in a nutshell. Thanks for listening. Oh, it makes uh, Wayne's World 2 a lot funnier. I have not seen Wayne's World 2. Oh! I know. I'm sorry. I've seen the first one, but I have not seen Wayne's World 2. It, it's, I'm not going to say it's as good, but it's, it's close. Like, it's one of my favorite sequels of all time. <laughs> I praise and, and Christopher Walken. My, my lord, he is amazing in that. Yeah. 
Ah, damn. Yeah. I figured you would have seen both of those. Those are both, those are both real funny. You had me at walking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh boy. So the graduate, I liked it, but it's, it's a very odd movie. It's a, it feels like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a great way of putting it. Just the way it's, the lighting, the way it moves, the cinematography, transitioning, it definitely feels that way. And the tone, it, it just resonates on this strange level with, I wouldn't say just males, but people who are out of school and are like, what is happening? Oh, yeah. And, and so sometimes you, whatever it may be, you kind of go for the first thing that comes to you sort of thing. and whether it be a job or a relationship or, or this or that, or, you know, opportunity. And the graduate captures that tone really well. Um, this is the one I've seen the most out of all of these, just because I saw it quite, quite a ways back. I probably saw it at an age my parents wouldn't be too happy about, but, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I really enjoy this one. It's uh, you know, there's the poster up at the draft house we worked at, right. Uh, it's there for a reason. This is, this is, this is a classic for a reason. One thing I did relate to with The Graduate is um, I've been in that post-college haze where you're kind of just like, what do I do now? And there's, if there's one thing I absolutely fucking hate, it's anybody trying to dictate my life. So mm-hmm. I understand that mentality of like, you know, my parents are not going to tell me what to do. I'm a grown-ass man. I'll figure it out. Like, yeah. you know, I hate the concept of the plan. And uh, thankfully, my, my family was never like that. But I have known, you know, known people who had that plan. They couldn't deviate from the plan because the par- their parents had, you know, set everything up. It reminded me of Dead Poets Society of like, yes. you know, yes. this is how it's going to be. So shut up. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the graduate, again, there, there's, you know, um, Dead Poets Society, Risky Business. You know, you could go keep going down the line of all movies that deal with like that exact thing of. I, I don't know if I want. I, I don't know if I want to do this. If I like, I'm doing what, what my parents are telling me to do. Yeah. Uh, and it's that, that simple thing of, you know, being, you know, a young adult is, is, is so hard. It's so hard to navigate. <laughs> well, that line of where his dad's like, so are you going to go to graduate school or are you going to throw your life away? Like, Jesus, it's just, are those the only two options? <laughs> yeah. I, I, a movie I watched really late last night um, as I was just trying to, uh, go to sleep was Adventureland, and there's a there's a bit between the dad and son when he's like, uh, t- he's telling his dad, you know, I I like, you know, I went to school. I don't, you know, I can't work at these places as a waiter or whatever. Out, come on, like I went to school, <laughs> and he's like, so I had to get a job at Adventureland. His dad's like, come on, kiddo, you can do better than that. And it's like, well, but dad, I, this whole school thing. <laughs> got fucked up so <laughs> so like you got to give me some time and, and the dad's like well but you got to get a job and it's like well this is the job i got right now you know it's that whole that whole you know, cycle it's a vicious cycle that we've all in some fashion sort of been through whether it be out after high school or after college or, or or anything you know it could be a freshly out of relationship where you just kind of feel like what the fuck what am i going to do now well, those crossroads those crossroads moments and, and they're important I'll be open about this. I kind of fucked up my uh, life trajectory when I decided not to pursue a teaching certificate when I was getting my bachelor's in English. I had been working towards getting a teaching certificate. And then at the last second, I uh, 
I got talked out of it and I changed my degree path and graduated with an English degree with a minor in uh, uh, media studies, which means absolutely dick. So I ended up with a useless degree that I can get, like that does not benefit me with any job. And I was like, fuck, why did I do that? I ended up getting a job work, uh, taking staples out of paper for, for a year. And then I finally had an epiphany of like, I need to finish this. I need to see this through. So here I am. I'm back in school and working towards a t- uh, graduate school. So I'm, but I had that moment of like, what did I, I fucked up. <laughs> like I fucked up bad. Hey, and it took me like, you know, a, a couple years to kind of to finally realize that. So I, you know, I get it. <laughs> I understand that mentality of like, you know, what is my life supposed to be? And, you know, did I miss the boat or has it, has it not arrived yet? Oh, right. That, yeah. Press gave you, you know, fear of missing out and all that stuff. Like you, those things, tip of the tongue, all those things where you're like, Oh, the moment's right there. But if I go here, I'm going to miss it. And yeah. if I do this, am I going to miss this part of my life? And so the graduate for whatever, if, if people don't like it or not, I think it's important for, for that, for that part of film where, it's okay to bring up those emotions, those emotions of just, like you said, the haze, the haziness, uh, the haziness of being young and people telling you, you've got to figure something out now. Ooh. And you know, yeah, uh, clearly you and I are impacted by it. <laughs> well, you know, the generation and, before us was told you need to go to college. Then you need to go to, you need to get a job. Then you need to get a husband slash wife. Then you need to have a child. That is the plan. But our generation has realized like, no, you don't need to do that plan. You can do it any way you want. It's up to you. It's your life. And I think we're the first generation to realize that. Thanks, Fight Club. (laughs) Yeah. Tyler Durden did this to us. Yeah. You know, we're a generation, we're a generation raised by, raised by our mothers. (laughs) Fucking Brad Pitt. You know, that's, that's the real cause of all this. No, 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 no. But, but, but seriously, you know, you think about movies like that, that are playing on these, the, those emotions. And it certainly <laughs> comes back around to, to the graduate and those, those emotions of what are we doing? Am I important? <laughs> and it's, and it's amazing. It really is. And that's like a big part of movies. Um, I certainly will do the graduate at some point on Oscar Sunday. I'm not sure when, but uh, 1967 has some, has some bangers and I'm really excited to, to explore them in the future, right? Uh, we have a good lineup to choose from. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And that takes us to guess who's coming to dinner. Uh, my, my personal favorite of the bunch. I okay. fell okay. in love with this movie. Uh, basically, uh, young white Joanna shows up to her uh, liberal white upper class parents and says, I'm going to marry a black man. And they're like, you what now? And it's basically an hour and 40 minutes of that. <laughs> but it's... Yeah, uh, hold, hold. Yeah. <laughs> it's only going to get more uncomfortable from here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she is so like, no, everybody will love this. Not realizing, you know, the climate of the world and how, you know, both white and black parents are going to react to something like this. She's so naive and so, oh, man, so much like uh, Allison Williams' character in Get Out. What's her name? Um, I can't remember her name, but you know the character in Get Out at the beginning, Oof. and then you find out later on. You find out later what's really going on. That 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 character has certainly lasted over time. This character can, in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. 
I can absolutely see Spencer Tracy's character saying to Sidney Poitier, I could have voted. I would have voted for Obama a third time. I can see that. Yeah, Holy for God, sure. I can't believe I didn't make that connection. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking about the whole time. And, and I'm sure there's other films, you know, uh, I can't think of them right now, but just at the top off my head, you know, you think of, you think of Get Out, uh, a movie that 2017, you're talking about 50 years where it's like, oh, you can feel tones that are similar in both movies. And that's just the power of cinema, right? That's why we have these podcasts. That's why we love it so much. Yeah. And this film is so timely and it's so, uh, well, timeless, really. I mean, you... <laughs> These arguments are never yeah. going to stop, regrettably. These, you know, the way this is framed. But the film is so well-written and all the characters are so realistic because I love the idea of older, liberal, white parents who are still appalled by this. Like, it's who they yes. are. At their core, they're still like, I am not okay with my daughter marrying a black man. Yeah, but, yeah. and that's the, that's the movie, right? That's the whole movie is we couldn't have the white family be just straight-up racist who are just, like, out front about it. But yeah. the, the fact that they do call themselves liberals, and then when they're finally challenged by something, finally confronted, are you really? Yeah. And then on the opposite side of it, you've got Cindy Poitier's parents who find out that their son is going to marry a white girl, and they're just as appalled. Yep. But they are much more vocal about it, especially his yes. dad. who's like, what oh, yes. the hell are you thinking? My favorite scene is when Cindy Poitier confronts his dad and oh, says, man. you know, you think of yourself as a black man. I see myself as a man. Oh my God. I almost, I, I cried. I'm not going to lie. I was like, Sydney. Oh boy. Sydney's, oh. Sydney's something else. Yeah. And then of course, you know, during production, Spencer Tracy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. He was on his way out. Catherine Hepburn was doing everything she could to make sure he, he finished this movie. The scene where at the end where, you know, Spencer Tracy admits, you know, his true feelings. Catherine Hepburn is crying. She's not that's not fake. She's crying because her best friend and lover is dying. And it's, oh, that part of it really hurt, like really hurt. Cause you know, I'm a big, I'm a big Catherine Hepburn fan. And I'm just yeah, now well, finding out about, you know, Spencer Tracy's work. So yeah, they hurt. were, they were, they were in something like 15 movies together over their careers. And yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's really special. So for sure that added to the, the punch of this movie. Well, and, um, Stanley Kramer is the same guy who did Judgment at Nuremberg. Yes, yes. And I, oh my Lord, that was one of my favorite films we ever got to talk about. And uh, another film I would love to do on this show because oh, that movie yes. was unreal. So Stanley Kramer is quickly becoming one of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah, that's 1961, was yeah. that? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll definitely cover that one one day. Oh, so many great films to choose from. And In the Heat of the Night, beat them all. Is there anything you would have liked to see take, uh, get nominated for Best Picture in 67? Um, yeah, so I was able to watch um, the, the film that won Best Foreign Language Film, which was a Czechoslovakian film called Closely Watched Trains. I think that movie is uh, far better than Dr. Doolittle. Uh, <laughs> David Holzman's Diary. Uh, cool hand Luke. Um, yeah, I, I, any of those to take that spot, but those, those four are pretty solid. Yeah. Nothing's taking those away, but I would, I would replace uh, Dr. Doolittle with the dirty dozen personally. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Duh. Yeah. Dirty dozen as well. Yeah. Any really, yeah. Dirty dozen, cool hand Luke, 
closely watch trains. Uh, I, I would love to see in cold blood one day. Uh, yeah, man. I, I just don't think Dr. Doolittle. I, well, it's, it's not, I think it, it's not on the same level as those. So it, it would be nice to see the five kind of rounded out, but uh, Hey, last, la- last week we had the same thing. 1948 Hamlet was clearly like, well, you don't belong in this group compared to these <laughs> other movies. And that shit's going to happen every now and again. So I'm glad we were able to see them all. But uh, you said guess who's coming to dinner is your favorite. My favorite is definitely in the heat of the night. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, I chose it for a reason for this episode. Uh, and uh, I just think it's so special. And you talked about how guess who's coming to dinner is timeless in the heat of the night. My Lord is, is, is also timeless. Unfortunately, um, yeah. you talk, you, you could talk about all kinds of angles with this, you know, you have the, the racial, you know, divide and, you know, prejudice and racism and you got, you know, a black cop. Right. And, you know, obviously police and black Americans are, are not getting along, haven't gotten along for a long time. And therefore a lot of American people don't get along with the police and, it's, it's such a fascinating movie to just look at at any time in America. That's why it's timeless. And that's why we need filmmakers to kind of interpret what's happening for us. And I think that's, that's uber important. And it's also just a really well-made movie, <laughs> you know, it's not just really important and got a lot to say uh, that and guess who's coming to dinner are also, they're just really good movies and really rewatchable and have things that you're going to pick up on as you see it more and more. So uh, I I really like this group, man. It's uh, a shame Doctor Doolittle kind of makes it makes it you know look not as clean. <laughs> you know what it is? It's the like it's the winning sports team where one of the kids like bought their parents bought their way in. Yeah, exact exactly. <laughs> They're like, oh god, Timmy. At yeah. least he's tall. At least he's tall. Just go stand by the rim or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> come on, Chief. Put the ball in the basket. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, I guess with that, we should talk about In the Heat of the Night. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the Heat of the Night has a IMDb score of 7.9. Mm-hmm. Very reasonable. And a Rotten Tomatoes score of, I don't know, because the fucking TV show came up. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's like the first thing on IMDb that pops up. Why? 95%, I, by the way. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, listeners, but in the, um, in the 80s, they started a TV show based off In the Heat of the Night. It ran from 88 to 95, starred Carol O'Connor from All in the Family as uh, Galepsi and Alan Autry as Virgil Tibbs. And uh, why? I don't know. <laughs> but it was relatively successful. Won some Emmys. There's also two sequels to this film. Uh, 1970s, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. And 1971's The Organization. Neither of which were very successful and were both more action movies. Starring Poitier as Virgil Tibbs. It's like his James Bond. And, um, but this film is un- unrivaled. And uh, yeah, it, it earned every award it got. And uh, Let's talk about it. Yeah, we're going to give, give it some awards ourselves, of course, and therefore talk about some scenes. So um, for those of you that may be first-time listeners, 
what we're going to do here is with the film we both watched, uh, I, we both watched five this week, but we're going to stick with In the Heat of the Night. We're going to have, uh, both of us are going to choose a best line slash quote, uh, best music moment, uh, best performance, and then a best scene. So uh, you want to go first here? Sure. What are we starting with? Let's, let's, let's go start from the top. Best line slash quote. Okay. So this was tough. Um, there's a lot of great lines in this film, but there was one that particularly resonated with me. It's not particularly a great line, but it, it really made me think and kind of made me wince. It's when uh, Gillespie and Tibbs are driving to Endicott's place uh, through yes. the cotton fields. Okay, okay. And Gillespie like nudges Tibbs, points at the cotton pickers and goes, none of that for you, huh, Virgil? Oh, man. I was like, you fucker. <laughs> oh, this, that line really just pissed me off. And I, I wanted to include that. Yeah, he does that time and time again. Uh, well, I'll reverse it on you because my favorite quote slash line is when Rod Steiger is just turning it up to 11 and he, you know, fucking does it. He says the N-word and then, bam, Sidney Poitier, they call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> and it's, it's the biggest moment of the movie as far as for him, for his character, he's like, I am fucking here, whether you like it or not, and I'm the best fucking cop here. So shut the fuck up and listen to me. And, and it, it sort of worked in a way, you know, got some respect, obviously, as time goes along. That's one of our favorite parts of the movie is the chemistry that just sort of builds organically through those two characters. And there's so many lines between them two that are, that are stellar. Uh, great, great screenplay. So that, that, would, that would bring us to best music moment. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to point out that They Call Me Mr. Tibbs is on dozens of greatest movie quotes of all time lists. For a reason, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's become kind of the most recognizable thing attached to this film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, haven't seen of, it, they know that. Part, part of me felt lame picking that, but at the same time, I was like, no. It is, it is not just because of that line, but what's happening around it and how he's pushed finally to the brink. And yeah. I just, I love that moment because it's needed. Absolutely. Best music moment. Uh, I had the opening for the longest time. Uh, Ray Charles in the heat of the night, setting the tone. And then once again, we go back to the fucking cotton fields. It's, you know, panning over this endless field of all black people picking cotton in 1967. And the music tied there is the, um, an instrumental part of Ray Charles in the heat of the night. And just for a second there, it's we're back in the civil war. It's like it was never fought in Sparta, Mississippi, nothing changed. Ah. And it just felt so wrong. And yeah, it was, that whole scene just got in under, it really got under my skin. Oh man, that is epic. That's really cool. What a great way to kind of, feel that right and that's that's certainly what music does to you especially in film when you have image in front of you and your own imagination to play with at the same time yeah and if you can if you can multitask and do those things which it sounds like that's what you're doing and that's so cool that you're kind of taking taking what's happening in front of you and applying it to just kind of like what you know about that time and period in american history so cool man i i love that and there's certainly a lot of moments where 
you're just kind of like bobbing your head. And then there's moments where you're like, holy shit, this is kind of scary. This music's kind of frightening. Yeah. And uh, that, that, that would lead me to say that I think there's a combination of both of those whenever Harvey's on the run. When Harvey, Harvey's going down the hill and goes on the bridge, you got some awesome electric guitar playing, and, but also this kind of subtle, almost horror-like tempo. And then it speeds up to where you're like, oh my God, I'm watching The French Connection. And then it slows down. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's really one of my favorite scenes and definitely my favorite music cue uh, moment where, where Harvey's on the run and finally gets caught by, by our boy Rod Steiger. Yeah, and Harvey, by the way, a young Scott Wilson, who we just talked about last week on Filmgasm. Crazy how these things tend to work out. Uh, and he, he is so good in this movie. Holy shit. <laughs> uh. I just picked up the wallet. I, that's all I did. I didn't do nothing. Like just, oh. okay, I, I love, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. All right, what is next? Best performance. Okay, I think we're going to be split here. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. <laughs> Why don't you start this one off? I, I, I got to go with my man, um, Mr. Tibbs, Sydney. He, he, um, I didn't think that the first time I watched it. I thought Steiger owned the film the first time I watched it. And he does. He still does. I'm not saying he's not dominant in this movie. But the fact of the matter is, Sidney Poitier is a black man working in 1967 on this movie. And he's fucking killing it. Not just, not just like, oh, look, there's, there's a black guy on the screen. No, no, no. Like, that guy's outshining everybody else. He's really, really good. He's there for a reason. You know, he earned this shit. He's fucking amazing. You know, like you said, go back to the 50s. This guy's been doing it. True. Very true. And I've, when I, when I watched it last night, I had a similar feeling I had when I watched Black Panther, where I kind of put everything to the side and I was like, good God, this guy is good in this. Holy shit. You know, you just watch it for what it is and, I, I was blown away by his performance, blown away with what he has to do, especially in reacting to Steiger's incredible performance. So I, I, I know you're going Steiger, but it's, it's a toss up. I have no problem with either one. They're both amazing. Me neither. And Poitier, like what he has to do as Tibbs is he has to uh, check himself every time or else he's going to die. And that is, that's an incredible performance. And I do love him in this, but there's something about Rod Steiger. This I know, I know. Upper New York, it's like, you know, uh, upper New York kind of educated, well-spoken man transforming into a bloated asshole of a Southern sheriff. And it's just, it works so well. He disappears. I don't see Rod Steiger. I see Gillespie. And it's yep. just it's so great because for me, and this is going to be stupid, but I don't care. Rod Steiger to me has always been General Decker in Mars Attacks. <laughs> that's hey, the first that's thing I saw him in. That's always what I've associated with him with, just being the psycho warmonger in general. So to see that guy as this guy is a treat. And it just, it feels like I'm watching something special. And I, I yes. like that. But as you said, you know, I could go either way. This is a very tough, uh, <laughs> it's a very tough decision to make. They're, yeah, they're both, you know, and, and sometimes it's like, well, it doesn't matter. They need each other, right? They're both playing off each other. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I love sports. So it's like when two guys in basketball are just kind of like 
yeah, we have our teammates, but you and I are in something like we're in a special zone right now. We're going to kind of go off each other. And it certainly happens in art. It happens in when you're doing something creative. Um, and it's certainly happening in, in, in the heat of the night. It's happening through, you know, time and time again. It's amazing. It really is. It really is amazing. So best, uh, best scene. <laughs> best scene. You want to start it off for me? You, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I think these are going to be different as well um, because mine is a little more subtle uh, than, than, than most people would expect. It's the scene when Harvey and Tibbs are in the jail cell together and they're talking and that's when Tibbs is, is questioning um, Scott Wilson's character Harvey after that amazing chase scene. And there's something happening there. There's some magic. There's some magic happening there. As much as I just talked about Steiger... And this is kind of why I like Sydney's uh, performance a little bit more. When Sydney's on the screen by himself without Steiger, he he's he's whoa, he's still really really fucking good. The scene with um what's her name Mama Mama Kalita is that her name at the end of the movie? Yeah. That scene that scene is incredible. The way he kind of has this slight relief that like oh my god another black person, but at the same time he's like I got to stay locked in. And then he does it right here. The scene with Harvey, he's carrying it. And Scott Wilson, that, that, that slight accent, when he's asking him, where were you? And he's like, no, I'm not. You can ask Packy, Jeff, Packy or Tim, you know? And you're like, I, I don't know. It's so Southern and so goddamn American that I, I love that scene. And Sydney just decided, you know, I read that he, he made the decision right there to kind of sit down in the bunk bed. And he's just got his hand kind of up. Like the way he's just sitting right there is so fucking confident. And you just like, this guy's going to get some information, you know? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it ends up being a, a huge, huge scene. That's fantastic. So before I talk about my scene, I want to mention something I read in the trivia okay. that I just couldn't believe. So they were originally going to film this in the, in the South. However, Sidney Poitier uh, recalled a time where he and Harry Belafonte were nearly killed by the Klan. So they decided to relocate filming to Sparta, Illinois. And uh, they did go to Tennessee to film the cotton fields because there are no cotton fields in Illinois. So during that filming, while they were there, Poitier slept with a gun under his pillow and was harassed. But thankfully, nobody was hurt. So this was very real. This is not, you know, reflective of, you know, like over, this is not over-exaggerated. Like this was how people reacted to just black people minding their own business in, yeah. you know, Jim Crow America. This is, it's fucked up. So my scene is connected to that. Once again, we're back in the cotton fields. That whole scene was just like in my head. And it's the scene where Tibbs confronts Endicott. And Endicott slaps Tibbs for questioning him. And Tibbs, without thinking, slaps him right back. And Endicott is horrified. Like, he says, you know, there's a time I could have had you shot. Like, this is a man who is still living in 1865. Yeah. And Tibbs does not give a fuck. <laughs> and Gillespie is like, <laughs> he's like, why did you do that? Now I have to do something. And Endicott's looking at Gillespie like, what are you going to do? And he's like, 
well, I don't know yet. <laughs> and I love that scene because it's, you know, it's Tibbs standing up for himself against this vile racist, but also the snowball effect of what it does to Gillespie because throughout the movie, you have people telling Gillespie, like, why didn't you, why didn't you do something? Like, people in the town are more upset that Gillespie didn't react than they are to Tibbs slapping the guy. Because to them, it showed that Gillespie has picked a side. And that whole mentality, I just can't fucking fathom it. But right. to witness it like this, it's, it's done so well. And I just love seeing Tibbs really stick it to that motherfucker. Fuck yeah. And Such then and they leave, moment. he starts crying like a bitch. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, so that's my scene. Yeah, it, it, Sydney has so many moments of just kind of like, fuck you, I'm here, this is happening. Yes. Oh, goddamn. What else, anything else you'd like to point out about this film? Ah, uh, you know, with, with the new formula of the show, you know, we're really not spoiling too much of it and really kind of almost teasing it and, and I love that because I really want people to be inspired and influenced to go watch it for themselves. This is a classic for everybody. You got to see this one. There's films we've covered that are not for everybody on this show. This is a must see. Yes, yes it is. Very much so. You know, if you're a fan of crime thrillers, if you're a fan of you know racially charged drama, if you're yep. a fan of 60s classics, like this is this is an awesome film. It really yeah. is. And uh I'm going to give it an eight, but it, it is creeping up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I give it a nine and I understand that it definitely, you know, it's it, when you're comparing it to other films and you're trying to get fair scores, like I, I totally get it. It has room to move up and guess who's coming to dinner. I also think I would give a nine. I mean, it's just like this, this group is really good and I hope people feel, you know, inspired to go watch them because they are, uh, you know, some of them are on string services and that's how we're going to try to do it is give you guys, advice on how to watch these films with us right and uh yeah. i'm really excited for what's to come as of now in the heat of the night is available on amazon prime for free yes so you can check it out there yes yeah please do and uh with that let's talk about what happened this week in film let's do it so it was inevitable but it happened black widow has been delayed to may 2021 <laughs> yep it was a you know a long shot that it was going to come out this year. Disney is not known for taking risks. And uh, along with it, West Side Story, which was supposed to come out this Christmas, is now coming out next Christmas. Yep. So it's going to be avoiding this Oscar race. Honestly, I don't think it was going to get anything. I didn't like West Side Story the first time. I'm not going to like it again. So Yeah, same. I don't know why everyone's banking hard on that. Like, I don't care. <laughs> who does anybody care? Everyone who loves West Side Story is going to be pissed that they're remaking a classic. Exactly. <laughs> Who is this for? Um, next up, uh, Aldous Hodge has been cast as Hawkman in the upcoming Black Adam movie alongside Dwayne Johnson, shaping up to be quite a cool uh, superhero action movie. They've been trying to do Black Adam for like eight years now. I'm glad they finally are trying. Yeah, yeah. No, this, this is exciting though, right? Um, we've been talking about representation on this show, this this episode specifically, and just the kind of shit you want. You want more and more of these kind of things happening and it makes it exciting for all the kids who get to watch because they get to see themselves on the screen and I, I love what they're doing with that stuff. Oh, yeah, and Aldous Hodge is a fucking badass and he's going to make he's a great badass. Oh, that's exciting. I hope this movie actually happens because they've been saying this movie is going to happen right? for fucking ever. 
Um, next up, Yara Shahidi of the show Blackish has been cast as Tinkerbell in Disney's live action Peter Pan and Wendy, alongside uh, two newcomers whose name escapes me, and Jude Law as Captain Hook. So, looking oh, like that could be cool. <laughs> I hope they don't do the whole uh, Native American yeah, What Makes the Red Man Red song. Because, uh, oof. Oh, yeah, they probably need to cut that one out. <laughs> I I can't even I can't even watch Peter Pan anymore. It's just so mind-blowingly offensive. And I, oh I, yeah, and it's like oh my god, million you know it's made millions of dollars. How come Disney refuses to play Song of the South, but they let Peter Pan just fly free? I don't, out of convenience, people are like oh this is a classic. Fuck that. I want to see Song of the South. I want to see exactly how horribly racist it is, but I probably never will get a chance. No, probably not. It's just a lost movie. Yep. And finally, and this was sad, uh, actor Michael Lonsdale has died at 89 years old, uh, famous mostly for playing the Bond villain Hugo Drax in 1979's Moonraker. And uh, Drax was <laughs> one of the craziest Bond villains. His whole plan was he is going to use this extinct uh, orchid flower to make a uh, poisonous gas that is going to infect the entire population of Earth, except for the chosen few he has brought to his ark in space, and he is going Perfect. to be lord and like god of this new society. Like this was a Bond movie. This is fucking crazy. <laughs> they did that because Moonraker came out two years after Star Wars, so they had to capitalize on everybody loves space now. So we got to throw James Bond exactly. in space. And it's ridiculous, it's over the top, and it's one of the most entertaining Bond films they ever made. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's great. I will vouch for Moonraker every day of the week, and I was very bummed yeah. to see that Michael Lonsdale passed away. There's so many few, you know, uh, actors from that generation of Bond left. No kidding. <sighs> yeah, Michael Lonsdale, rest in peace. I will be watching Moonraker in your memory. Good. Yes. Let's, let's do it, man. Get a new review up. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Well, that was fun. What are we doing next week? Next week? Uh, we're taking it, uh, to a slightly older decade, the thirties. So we'll be visiting, uh, it's 1938. It's uh, angels with dirty faces, a film I have not seen yet. What about you? Nope. Never seen it. I have not dug into James Cagney at all. So yeah, we're going in blind next week. Uh, I anticipate that this one will be fun. I've read a bit about it, and I'm really excited. Uh, you know, this is, I believe, the 11th Academy Award. So yeah, we're taking it back old school. Uh, try to have some fun with it. So I uh, hope you guys join us next week. We're going to keep it going, keep it fresh, jump from decade to decade, out of order. And uh, yeah, if you want to get some 30s flavor, come back next week. Absolutely. Um, and in the... With the uh, 1938 Oscars, yes, um, there are like 10 films up for Best Picture. Uh, Angels with Dirty Correct. Faces was not one of them, so we're going to be a lot more sporadic and choosy with the films that we do as backup information on this one. We're going to watch some, some Cagney gangster films, uh, not all of them because that would be ridiculous, and then a few films that were uh, up in 38. So not a lot, but uh, as much as we can do, and um, do you happen to know if Angels Dirty Faces is streaming anywhere for anybody who wants to? I, kind of I, I do not. I should have come prepared for that. I do not know off the top of my head. I could look it up right now, though. 
Uh, oh, I'm looking. Apparently, this is a tough film to find. Good thing I have the DVD. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, regrettably, you know, if you can't if you can find it, watch it. You know, along with us. If not, tune in next week to find out our thoughts and see if it's something you might want to check out in the future. Yes. And uh, this week on the Filmgasm podcast, we are doing the recently released uh, racially charged horror film Antebellum. So that'll be Wednesday. And uh, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this one. This one got pretty political, but you know what? Them's the bricks. <laughs> yeah, this is, this, this is the, you know, again, we're not going to be shy to have those conversations. So fuck it, you know? Yeah, fuck it. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>